This is a Thoughts from a Page podcast, which is now a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. My name is Cindy Burnett, and each episode I interview authors about their latest works. For more book recommendations, check out my earlier episodes and my website, thoughtsfromapage.com, and follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Thoughts from a Page. Today, I am interviewing Kate Doty about mergers and acquisitions. Kate is a writer and former editor at the New York Times, where she covered the news of food, weddings, business, New York, and more. Her work has appeared in The Times, Southern Living, Our State, and other publications. A graduate of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, she lives in Raleigh, North Carolina with her family. I hope you enjoy our conversation. You know, a lot can happen in seven minutes, and luckily, that's how long it takes me to tell a story. My name is Aaron Califato, and I'm the creator of 7-Minute Stories. I'm proud to partner with Evergreen Podcasts, and I'd like to invite you to join me on this journey. I'm going to take you on some crazy roller coaster rides using my unique extemporaneous storytelling style, and together, we're going to try to make sense of the world, all through the art of storytelling, and all in approximately seven minutes. Welcome, Kate. How are you today? I'm fine. Thank you. Good. Well, I'm very glad you're here to talk with me about mergers and acquisitions. I had a ton of fun reading it. Oh, thank you so much. That means so much to me, more than I can say. I appreciate that. It was highly entertaining, and I have so many questions. But before we start, why don't you just give us a quick summary for those that haven't read it yet? Sure. Uh, my book is Mergers and Acquisitions, or Everything I Know About Love, I Learned on the Wedding Pages. And it is a memoir of my time writing the wedding announcements um, at the New York Times for several years. And it intertwines with a sort of coming of age story of, of me in my 20s living in New York, and also meeting the man and dating him and, the, and eventually marrying him, <laughs> meeting and marry, meeting the man who would become my husband and the, the ups and downs of our relationship. And it's just sort of a, a twisty turny tale of those three things intertwined. How did you end up writing about your time at the New York Times and then deciding to kind of wind your own story through it? You know, it's a good question. I live in North Carolina now, and uh, we moved down about four years ago. And after we moved, I was lucky to fall in with a group of women writers who were all publishing books or had published books or were working on books. And I was very lucky in that respect. And they happened to all share the same agent. And so when I started talking to this agent about my germ of an idea, when I started writing the wedding announcements, gosh, 15 years ago, I started immediately thinking, this is a book. Somehow this is a book. I don't know how it's a book. Just because the stories that were coming out through these people, through these interviews, were it was just fascinating to me. But when I was talking to my agent, uh, she was right. She said, you know, you are not a sociologist. This is not a sociology text, but there are so many sociological elements to this. But then she asked a really key question that stuck with me. And she said, well, what did you learn? And I realized that the major thing I had learned when writing these wedding announcements was what people think about commitment and what I knew about commitment and what I wanted uh, and how I felt about commitment. Because, you know, in your 20s, you there's lots of stuff going on. You're doing a lot of growing in, in every way. I The big hurdle I faced in my 20s, I felt, was figuring out what I wanted out of love and romance and another person. And so what I learned was, A, I wanted to marry this man who I eventually did, but B, commitment was a thing that I wanted to do, was something that I wanted to explore that was an important thing to me to do. And so I just realized that I couldn't tell the story about writing the wedding announcements without talking about the story of, of myself and my own journey, you know, through the through my twenties and my eventual marriage to my husband, because they're all part and parcel to me of the same story. 
Well, exactly. Because while you're working at this job, you're also working in your personal life, trying to figure out who you will eventually marry, whether you want to have the commitment or not. And that's all kind of working on similar tracks. Oh, and and he worked there too. I mean, he was a clerk and then an editor at the time. So in some ways, we were literally working side by side. And so, you know, one thing that I, of course, learned was that what I wanted was right in front of my face. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which is always, and it's, it's very convenient, but it also, you know, it took both of us a while to get there. And we had, we each had our different reasons for taking a while to get there. So yeah, so that, but that, when I was thinking about the story and the wedding announcements, and it, I would talk to these people, I would interview them the week or two before they get married. And it's a very fraught time, you know, the week before your wedding or the two weeks before your wedding. And, and I would ask them, Things just like, you know, tell me about your fiance. Tell me about the person you're going to marry. And some people would launch into these, you know, sort of rhapsodic, I love this person so much. I, I can't wait to spend the rest of my life with him or her. And other people would just sort of shut down and not actually want to talk about it. They felt it was almost too personal to be talking about this with someone who is just writing something like their wedding announcement. But with the people who were open, it was sort of a learning experience for me because most of these people were around my age, you know, were in the same decade of life and going through similar experiences, but they had been able to make this decision that filled me with such absolute anxiety. And so I learned a lot from them. I thought it was really interesting, the amount of pushback you got from some of the people that you included, because they're voluntarily submitting their wedding announcement, and then they're getting <laughs> frustrated when you're asking them questions. That is the weirdest thing ever. Yeah, it's yeah, it was so irritating. <laughs> yes, exactly. That's really the word I was looking for, but I thought, well, I won't say that. No, so, but fine. I would have been like, listen, you <laughs> submitted this to me. If you don't want to answer the questions, then I'll move mm-hmm. on to the next group. Yep, yep. I mean, you encountered many different, I should say, archetypes in this pursuit of writing wedding announcements. You know, there are a lot of people who felt like they were entitled to an announcement in the New York Times just by virtue of being who they were, you know, being extraordinarily wealthy or coming from a family with lots of power or being a former, you know, high-ranking politician in the Senate or something like that. And then you had people who were just excited to be, well, excited to be getting married. And this wedding announcement was just sort of the cherry on top of everything else wonderful that was going on in their lives. Yeah, there was a ton of pushback. Even when my own announcement was being written, this lovely reporter was fact-checking it. And I had warned my mother that they would be asking these questions. And, and, these, and these are questions like, it's not just like, can you spell your name for me? And how old are you? I mean, it's questions like, well, what do you do in your job? What is your title? With whom can I confirm that information? Because, you know, they just don't take it on gospel that, that um, you are who you say you are. You have to go check it out, just like the old journalism axiom says. And um, so I had warned my mother about these these questions, and she said, "Well, that's fine. What? Why would I be bothered by these questions?" And I said, "Well, okay." <laughs> and then, like a week later, she called me and she said, "These questions are very inappropriate." <laughs> I loved that part of your book because I was laughing. I was like, "Oh, I know what's coming here." <laughs> <laughs> she was so mad, and and I had warned her. I said, "You know, frankly, like some of these questions are not questions that I." enjoy asking, to be perfectly honest, but we have to ask them as part of the the rigorous fact-checking process that has to happen. But, you know, being on the other side of the coin, I don't necessarily want to answer these, but also I want my wedding announcement in the paper. So would you please answer them? <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. She was like, well, why do they need to know what she used to teach a uh, shop in middle school? And she said, why do I need to know, tell them what kind of shop I taught? And I thought, oh, God. 
But anyway. <laughs> I thought that was really funny. I also thought it was interesting. Well, first of all, I was fascinated that all of that fact checking happened. Of course, it makes sense that it does, but it's something I just never thought about. So I mm-hmm. thought, oh, I bet it is weird to be on both sides of those phone calls. But also I was fascinated. It seemed like over time, as you were talking to some of them, that you could get a pretty good sense for maybe whether the, the union would last or not. That was, I tried to. A, because I was just interested. Right. You know, I, you're talking to these people again, right before they get married, before they're, right before they're making this enormous leap. And, you know, as a reporter, as a journalist, I, I am a pretty nosy person. And so I, you know, I got curious and also the job could get repetitive. You'd ask the same questions over and over and over. And so I think all of the reporters and editors would do the same thing who, that worked on the section. They would do the same thing. They would think, oh. I don't know about this couple or or that or that couple is cemented for life. But of course, you never really know because there were several couples who I thought, oh, this is it for them. They're, they have met their perfect match. They've met their puzzle piece and they ended up divorced. And then I wrote a Val's column about these two people who got married on the sidewalk in front of a very famous jewelry store in New York. And I think they'd only, they hadn't been dating that long and the circumstances around their relationship were a little bit odd. And also... They got married basically on a whim on a sidewalk in front of a store, <laughs> right. which to me was a little bit like, uh, huh, okay. But they're still married. I mean, they've been married 15 years. So. Right. No, I remember <laughs> you said that. Yeah, that was kind of crazy. And it is. It is. It's so hard to know and you're not living the day ins and day outs. But I just thought it was funny because there were some times when the stories you relayed, somebody would be like, well, why do you love him? Well, I just love him. And you're like, hmm, okay, if they can't even really articulate what it is they like about the other person, mm-hmm. then maybe this one's not going to last forever. I don't want to spoil things. But, you know, some of them were shorter than others. And it's funny because, and to be perfectly honest, like if somebody asked me, like, what are the things you love about your husband? I would be like, I've been with him forever. Like, what are the things that I love about my husband? <laughs> but obviously there's a million of them. You know, I love that he's so supportive and I love that he lets me sleep in on Saturdays because he gets up with our kid. And I love that he is, you know, always the last person to, you know, he's the one who makes sure all the, make sure all the doors are locked at night. And it's those things that accumulate over a course of time in a marriage that sort of add up to this, this person that you want to keep waking up next to, hopefully for the rest of your life. But at the beginning of a, relation, of a relationship, it's, I think sometimes people tend to speak in like broader, sort of more uh, broad, uh, broader strokes, you know, like I love him because he's so much fun to be with. And well, yes, that's true. And time will, will show, you know, the 10,000 reasons why this person is so much fun to be with. But yeah, it was interesting. And also like you catch these people, you know, I wrote about this one woman who said that she uh, was marrying this guy and she basically implied that he was the one in the relationship who wanted to have kids. And, you know, of course, having children is the biggest, one of the biggest decisions you'll ever make. And it's completely fair to be on the fence about it, obviously. But when one person in the relationship is like completely all in on such an, a huge decision, and the other person is sort of like, oh, I don't know. I mean, that to, to me, anyway, that's a red flag. I agree completely. I think that's something that needs to be worked out before you get married because yes. <laughs> it is a huge thing. And, and it is totally okay to be on either side of it. Absolutely. It's just that if one of you is and one of you isn't, on the, you know, if you're not on the same side, it's going to be a lot trickier. Yes. Yes, for sure. For sure. And I saw some of that, you know, and like, but I used to wonder if this is what they were telling me, like, what were they actually thinking? Like, what were the, you know, right, <laughs> right. internal monologue like? So, but you know, you never know what goes on inside of an actual marriage and or relationship. So 
And and why people are getting married. I mean, I think yeah, sometimes yeah. people are getting married for many other reasons than love. Oh, totally. Totally. I mean, you know, there were certainly probably a lot of, of marriages that have been chronicled in the pages of the New York Times that were almost literal bank account mergers. Right. Which, you know, of course, is where the title of the book comes from. You know, people for years have called the pages the mergers and acquisitions pages or the women's sports pages, which is derogatory to say the very least. But I always liked the MA pages. I thought that it was funny, it was witty, um, and it also really zeroed in on one of the main reasons why these wedding announcements exist, which is to announce these mergers of families and bank accounts and power structures that, you know, that you could trace, you know, for some of these families, you could trace back decades, if not centuries. And so that's actually why we ended up, I, I, should say, I say we, because it was my writers group of, of women writers that they were the ones who really came up with the title or help, you know, help me, help me decide on the title. That was why we thought M&A was, or mergers and acquisitions was the right title for this book. Well, I definitely want to talk about the title in a minute because that is one of my questions. But before I forget, I want to loop back to one other question, which is as a lawyer, because I practiced law for a long time, as I was reading all these stories, I was like, hmm, I wonder, I mean, I'm, I know you changed the names and gave them nicknames. I mean, I get all of that. But did legal for Putnam have to go through the book and really make sure there wasn't enough that oh, represented these boy. people? I mean, I'm assuming that was quite a process. I spent two solid days on the phone with the wonderful legal team at Putnam. I was thinking that must have been a very large part of this book, because even though you've changed names, you have to make sure that still somebody's not going to be like, I know this is me and everybody else is going to know this is me. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. I mean, and and of course, as you know, there are some people in the book that have almost no expectation of privacy. Sheryl Sandberg, right? Right. Exactly. Or the senator from the great state of New York. Um, And he's also, and that person is such an incendiary figure too, that, that, but also he's very litigious. And so we, for that particular um, anecdote, we made sure that every single thing I wrote about him, except for the conversations that I had had with them, had been reported elsewhere, like page six or the New York Times, you know, so there's like a compendium of this actually happened. And you could say, you know, other people have already seen that this happened because it's been recorded elsewhere. Yes, absolutely. And also when I was finishing up the book, he was in the middle of an extremely contentious divorce from this woman that he had that. (laughs) I mean, it was it was bad, but page six wrote all about it. And so the Putnam legal team was just like, you know, whatever you basically, whatever you want to write about him is fine. <laughs> it's all out there. Yeah. It's all out there. But for these other couples that have no public profile, you know, they have every reasonable expectation of privacy. And when they got on the phone with me to talk about their wedding announcements, certainly they had no reason to believe that what they were saying would also be included in a memoir 15 years after the fact. <laughs> so... We did everything we could to really blind these people's identities. And and also we did everything we could to blind the identity of the character who was my uh, boyfriend at the beginning of the book, because he too is a private person and um, has every reasonable expectation of privacy. And I also felt very, there, there are some people in the book who are not the subjects of wedding announcements who are like my friends and family who I changed some details about just because I felt like they needed, they deserved to maintain their privacy as much as possible. Absolutely. And that makes perfect sense. But as a, you know, as a lawyer, and I kept reading and I was like, gosh, I wonder what the process was like to get this book to publication. Because <laughs> I was like, I know there had to be so two full days of conversations. I, that's a, that yep. had to be fun. 
Uh, Yuki Hiros and I became BFFs during that. <laughs> Please don't write another book like this. (laughs) And and it was so funny too, because we did it on video calls, you know, and we're all sitting there in our home offices and, and she would, I would say something. She would just give me like the mom stink eye look, the like, (laughs) are you sure about that? You know, and like, but it was a great process too, because not only did it, you know, help protect me from hopefully being sued, but it also it was a really good way of working through like, are you sure you meant to say that? Like, is that really what you're trying to get across here? So it was almost like another form of editing as well as like protecting Putnam, Penguin Random House and myself from from legal action. Oh, that's interesting. I hadn't really thought about it from the editing side of it. Just to kind of make sure you were really certain, as you said, that that's what you meant to say versus what you did say that could be taken mm-hmm. a different way. Yeah. What about your husband? I mean, how did he feel? I'm assuming that you ran everything by him that was going to be in the book before it was in the book. Well, that's actually funny. So <laughs> he <laughs> he uh, did not read the finished book until about a month ago when we got the hard copies, when we got the finished copies sent to us by Putnam. He's, he's very old school. He didn't want to read a PDF. He didn't want to read a galley. He wanted the real hardcover thing in his hand. Um, and so he took the next day off of work and just sat in the on the back patio and read it cover to cover, basically. And so it was, it was very sweet because he would come in to my home office where I was working. And of course, it was one year for listening out to hear him coming down because I knew I wanted to know what he thought. Sure. And about halfway through the day, he would come in and he would say, you know, something like he loved this or he really adored that. I mean, he's very extremely, he loves the book. I should say right up front, he loves the book. But he would come in and, and ask, you know, why I chose to do this or that. About the middle of the day, he looked at me and he said, you're nervous, aren't you? <laughs> and I said, well, of course I am. Right. <laughs> of course I am. Like, like, I want you to love it. Yes. Like his important, you know, his opinion of the book is the most important to me of all for, for many reasons. But then I think he started kind of having some fun with it. You know, like he saw how nervous I was and he was like, ha <laughs> I can, I can mess with her a little bit. But anyway, when I started writing the book, I had asked him if he wanted, uh, clearance on any stories. And he looked at me like I was insane. And he said, absolutely not. This is your book. You tell the stories from your perspective. I did give him the pieces uh, the portions of the book that pertain directly to him and had stories uh, that he would have remembered. And I did that not as a, uh, not as, not for clearance, just as a, an act of good faith, I guess. But also he was really helpful with fact checking or, or timeline stuff like saying, you know, no, we lived in Brooklyn when that happened or, or whatever. We, the only the only thing that was off limits from his perspective was stories about his family, which he believes, and I uh, completely agree with that those belong to him. There were a couple of stories about his dad in the book, but he he agreed that those were fine to share. But I will say, like, you know, I shared some very personal things um, about us, about our relationship, of course. And he, when he read the book, he he kind of questioned me, and he said, "Well, why didn't you go further? There's so you know, there's so much more personal stuff that you could have shared." And I thought. Uh, no, I'm done. Exactly. <laughs> First of all, obviously, it is it is done. It is done. But, you know, I shared what I thought was appropriate. But he, of course, has been extraordinarily supportive and 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 loves the book. And thank God he loves the book. <laughs> well, yes, it would not make it very pleasant for you at the moment if he didn't. It would, no, it would be terrible, actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I was curious about the ring story, but I figured that's one of those stories that I'm sure he got over ages ago. But as a woman, you know, I, I can. I was totally on board. I was like, oh, and then it was just so funny. Your mom, the second, you know, I was just like, okay, women are on board with that stuff so fast and men just sometimes mm-hmm. don't get it. But I would assume mm-hmm. that was one thing that probably took him a little bit. But over time, he probably just laughs now. 
He does. And he also admits that it was a really ugly ring. <laughs> and I, so then he's like, okay, now that we have this other ring, I get what you're saying. <laughs> yes, yes. But the funny thing is, like, I don't even really wear my my other engagement ring anymore. It just uh, it just sits on. I have like a little ring stacker thing on my bedside table, and it just sits there. And I have, you know, I wear my wedding band, and then I wear this band that has our daughter's name engraved on the inside of it. And it, that to me is is the most important piece of the puzzle, right there. So. Um, every so often he'll say, why don't you wear your engagement ring? But he's, it's more of a dig than anything. It's not like a, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't really care, but yes, that was a very, I would say the 24 hour period after I told him I didn't like the engagement ring. (laughs) And when we sort of circled back to each other, those were, that was not the most fun, but you know, it made for a funny story years down the road. So. Absolutely. And you know, it's one of those things that's going to blow over. It's going to be unpleasant for a little bit. And then because mm-hmm. I'm sure you knew him plenty well enough to realize that over time, he's going to be like, I get it. Yeah. Oh, totally. Totally. Yeah. I mean, he was, he was mad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, my husband but, would have been the same way. But you know, I would have done the same thing you did. So I could just I could completely understand how that unfolded and thought it would have unfolded the exact same way for us. So I get it. <laughs> oh, gosh. Uh. Yeah. Well, let's go back to the title. I love to talk about titles and covers because I'm always just so fascinated how they come about. So you talked a little bit about the mergers and acquisitions part of it and your writer's group coming up with that. Did the Mm -hmm. publisher like it? And then how did the extra, what do they call that? The postscript? No, what's the second part of your title called? There's a formal name for that. Oh, what is it? There is. And that that one was workshopped like almost to death, I felt like. Um, The second part (laughs) of your title. How yeah. did it come about? <laughs> yeah, well, so I, the book has, when I submitted the proposal to to my agent and then to publishers, the title was always Mergers and Acquisitions, and everybody loved the title. And I think the original title I submitted was, it was something wonky, like my time as a weddings, you know, it, it was it was not anything that should ever appear on the cover of a book. But everybody said, oh, I love Mergers and Acquisitions, especially people from the, you know, people who had been in the New York publishing industry who like knew, who identified exactly why that was called mergers and acquisitions right off the bat. The second part of the title, um, which is everything I know about love, I learned on the weddings pages. That was really, really workshopped because, you know, when you write write a book called mergers and acquisitions, most people are not expecting that, oh, this book is going to be about wedding announcements. They're going to be like, oh, it's about, I don't know, complex financial transactions or, or, or whatever. So we had to come up with a subtitle or the second part of the, whatever that really encapsulated the fact that it was a memoir. So everything I know about love. And then the, also the fact that it was about the wedding announcements. And we, you know, thought about using society pages, but nobody really knows what society pages are anymore. Even though when I was working on the weddings desk, where it was called the society desk and the secretary or the admin used to answer the phone, society news. Oh, um, so <laughs> oh, wow. I know, which, but that doesn't, and there was a big brown sign that, that hung over the, the desk that said society news, but of course not many people know what that is anymore. So I think Sally Kim, who is an editor at Putnam, she's not my editor, actually, um, Michelle Howery is my editor and she worked, she and I worked really hard on this. And finally Sally Kim thankfully stuck her nose in and said, what about this? And it fixed it. So thank goodness. <laughs> Well, it's hard sometimes. Okay, I just looked it up. Subtitle is what they say on the internet. (laughs) So now we know the subtitle of your book is or everything I know about love I learned on the wedding pages. So I was like, okay, that's going to bug me. Well, and what about the cover? I just think it is fabulous. I just love it. 
Oh, thank you. I mean, I have to say, I never thought the cover of my first book was going to be like a hot coral pink. But then when I got the the first iteration of the cover from the art department, I thought, oh, well, of course it has to be this like kind of shocking, right? Pink. But so the cover is uh, the top of a cake or the, the top of a, you know, like a three-tiered wedding cake. And then they've got the, the bride and groom cake topper on top. And then you've got frosting all over the bride and groom's faces. And so it's meant to show a lot of things that, you know, A, obviously this book is about weddings and, and sort of fancy weddings, but also it's meant to indicate to the reader, like the, the foibles and the tribulations and sort of just the messes that come along, that can come along with weddings and also in marriage and commitment and all those things. And also it is, but like a lot of this book is supposed to poke very gentle fun at the wedding announcements. You know, like I think I do wholeheartedly embrace their existence and their reason for being, and I love reading them even now, but it is sort of a weird impulse that we have to, to announce our weddings in such a huge way, in such a, a vaunted way, you know, in this institution that occupies such a huge space in the American imagination and is a target. <laughs> all the time, right? <laughs> you know, all the time, you know. And so that was the reason for the frosting on the faces. But also I remember when um when I got it, I had not been given any indication of what the cover was going to look like, other than I think that they had said, it, you know, it, we think it's going to be pink. And I th- the only thing I said was, I don't want it to be Tiffany blue. Because, you know, you see so many weddings books and it's like Tiffany blue with an ivory bow on top. And I wanted to set the book apart from that. Yeah, oh, I love the cover. And the woman, Sandra Chu, who designed the cover, like I owe her a gazillion dollars because I, I just think it's fabulous. And I think it encapsulates everything that I wanted this book to say. So I feel very lucky in that respect. I think it's perfect. I mean, I loved it at the beginning, but then after reading the book, I'm like, oh, I just think it really perfectly does capture your story. And I love the flowers that are coming in from the sides. It's just gorgeous. Thank you. Thank you. Well, are you working on anything at the present that you would like to share with me? I am. as I am working on a novel about two intertwined uh, friendships, uh, a friendship um, between two people who meet in a North Carolina mill town right around the time of, of World War I. And it's a, it stretches from 1914, I guess, to the early 70s. And it's sort of these two people see the best and worst of America. But it, it is completely, completely fictional. Uh, but the research has been extensive because the characters are based loosely on two real life people. It's been super fun to research. And I've never really worked on a work of fiction before. And so this feels to me really ambitious. So I'm having a good time with it, but it's also keeping me up at nights, which I think is what writing is supposed to do anyway. So your brain is on overdrive at night trying to piece through some of the things that you haven't totally worked through. Oh, absolutely. And one of the characters is based on a woman who essentially ran away with the circus here in North Carolina in 1912, I think, 1913, something like that. She was a mill worker in you know one of the many spinning mills that used to be in North Carolina. And um, she had, you know, married at 12, had a baby at 12, oh I think. Gosh. Yes. And then, of course, she's a 12-year-old child working full time and apparently going back to the, she would go home back to the mill village to nurse her baby and then come back and you know, pull these like 12-hour shifts. And her husband ran, you know, left her, of course, and she ended up running away <laughs> with the circus. And this is a true story. I love that, you know, she... <laughs> She left her baby with her mother, but her and her mother said, "Sure, that's fine. You could do what you need to do." Because she, you know, can you imagine? She was twelve. No, she was twelve. Yeah, no, I, that that alone pretty much just tells you everything you need to know. She had yeah. no childhood, you know. I mean, you just Absolutely. think, oh, so you can see where you'd want to go to the circus for a little yes. while. Yes, 
Absolutely. Absolutely. And so I've been, I've been having a really good time thinking about what her mental space would have been like and what life would have been like for her in the circus. <laughs> and then she has the, but she's uh, the story intertwines with a friend of hers. They become friends in this little, ta- this little mill town that they live in, in Eastern North Carolina. And he is black. And of course that right there sets up all sorts of tension and, and he has a very different background. He actually comes from a much, a much more middle-class background than she does. And they just, they sort of experience America together um, from very different perspectives and, and through very different lenses, but they, um, I'm not even sure where they're going to end up. <laughs> yeah. Like, they're going to do something, but I'm not quite there yet. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, that sounds good. And yeah. I look forward to it when it makes its way out into the world. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. We'll see. We'll see. I think the first thing I'm going to do after, uh, after the, the excitement about mergers opens or, or, and uh, I hope it doesn't end. Actually, I don't want it to end. <laughs> but like after this initial publication period ends, this, I think I need to go stare at an ocean for a while, probably like so many other people. But but you know, I'm just so excited and and so happy and and so honored. I think from all the good things that people have been saying about um, this first book, and I'm just so grateful for all of the good things that have come my way because of this book. Well, I just had so much fun reading it. I know everybody else is going to be the same way. But before we wrap up, I would love to hear what you've read recently that you really liked. I have read, well, I, um, <laughs> I uh, had been sort of on a, a, a comfort reading kick, um, A, because of the pandemic and B, because I was obviously so anxious about this book coming out, you know, but I, so I've been reading, I read all of the Anne of Green Gables books, <laughs> which That's is fun. Not, yeah. not probably what you want to hear. No, but, uh, I mean, I, I think whatever you're reading, I, I always love to hear what people are reading. It doesn't matter what it is. Well, the, the Anne books for me, uh, just for like for so many other women are just absolute comfort food. And I have, to, I have to go back to them once a year. I don't feel like myself, but I just finished a book called Why Peacocks by my friend Sean Flynn. And that came out today's Thursday. So it came out Tuesday and it's about, it's his memoir of raising or, or acquiring basically rescue peacocks which you didn't, you know, no one would ever think that <laughs> rescue like, peacocks are a thing. <laughs> right. Um, and I, um, but, the, but this person um, was getting rid of peacocks and Sean is a, a national magazine award finalist. He's a longtime national correspondent for GQ. And his uh, main thing is that he writes about death and mayhem. Like he went to Norway after, after that person killed all of those people and wrote about okay. that. You know, he, right. he wrote about the downing of the Malaysian Airlines flight and all that. And so he was at sort of a, a crossroads in his life, and he and his family ended up acquiring three rescue peacocks named Carl, Ethel, and Mister Pickle. <laughs> and <laughs> so, and it's a wonderful read. It's just it's so informative, and I learned so much, not just about peacocks, but just about human nature in general. And the other thing I tore through, probably for the, the millionth time, honestly, is a book by Kay Gibbons, another North Carolina writer, called Charms for the Easy Life. And I don't know if you've ever read any Kay Gibbons, but you know, it's just, I don't think she's writing anymore, and it's a shame she's not because she has a gift for language unlike anyone I've ever heard. And she she writes about the interior lives of women in such a way that she's just gifted. She's she's really just a gifted a gifted writer. But Charms for the Easy Life is about a group of women in North Carolina in the 1920s, and the matriarch is a midwife, and just all the adventures and um, interior explorations that come from that. So those are, those are two things I've been reading. I don't know her at all. So I'm going to have to look her up and track that book down because it sounds really good. And I love that time period. Oh, it, oh she, what's her other one? Um, A Cure for Dreams is another okay. one. That, um, and she, oh, she also wrote Ellen Foster, which I think they made into a movie 
a couple of decades ago. But Charms for the Easy Life and A Cure for Dreams are my two favorites. And I just love her so much. And again, I think it's a shame that that she's not able to write anymore because, you know, I think she's got some things that are locked away that could be gifts to the world. Well, I'll definitely have to track those two titles down and get them read this summer. So thank you. Those are And the Why Peacocks actually sounds so interesting to me. So I'm going to definitely have to look into that one also. It's so fun. It's... <laughs> It sounds it's, like it's, it. And entertaining and a little different. <laughs> it is. It definitely is. It definitely is. I know I could give you all sorts of reading recommendations for a six-year-old, but I don't think you need those. <laughs> no, I am past that time period. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I used to know them too, but it's been a while. <laughs> well, this has been such a fun interview, Kate. Thank you so much for joining me on the Thoughts from a Page podcast. I've had a ball. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate this. This has been so much fun. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you liked this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram at Thoughts From a Page. Tell all of your friends about the podcast and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. It really helps me out. Kate's book can be purchased at the Conversations From a Page bookshop storefront, and the link is in the show notes. I hope you'll tune in next time. Are you tired of seeing your teen or young adult struggle on a path that clearly isn't the right fit? Is your teenager confused about which direction to take after high school? The future of work is changing rapidly, and our kids need to know all of the options available after high school so they're empowered to make the choice that is best for them. In each episode, we explore the latest trends that are shaping the opportunities of today and tomorrow. I'm your host, Betsy Jewell, and this is the High School Hamster Wheel Podcast.